You're listening to Brunch with me, Noreen Mir, on this Tuesday morning. Now, in the next 20 minutes or so, we're heading into space, sort of. Two astrophysicists from the Laboratory for Space Research at the University of Hong Kong have finally solved a 20-year-old astrophysical puzzle concerning the quote-unquote disappearing sulfur, which is an element found in planetary nebula. But has it really disappeared? Now, to talk about this, I'm really delighted to be joined by Professor Quinton Parker, who is the director of the Laboratory for Space Research from the Department of Physics at the University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the program, Professor Parker. It's great to see you today. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It's a real pleasure, Noreen, to be on your show. Just one quick uh, correction. I'm, I was in the Department of Physics, but since uh, December of a previous year, uh, well, just over a year ago now, I was moved uh, into the Faculty of Science as the Laboratory for Space Research was given more autonomy under the Faculty of Science. So we now have, uh, you know, a kind of greater autonomy and greater freedom uh, to pursue uh, some of our activities uh, and the greater support from the university as a result, I think. Yes, that's good to know. Sorry about that. Um, and now let's talk a little bit. First of all, congratulations to you and your team. Um, it's, it's quite a great discovery. Um, but before we talk about the, the actual data and the science, give us a little bit of a background. It, it will be sort of technical. So uh, do explain oh. some of the terms that we're going to hear about. Um, well, yeah, I mean, when people hear of the term planetary nebulae, they think, what the hell is that? They think of maybe something to do with planets, but it's, it's actually got nothing to do with with planets. It's just that when the very first planetary nebulae were found and discovered uh, in the 18th century, they looked a bit like the gas giants, a bit like Neptune and Uranus and Jupiter uh, when they were first found. But these actually, the ejected, uh, glowing, dying envelopes of stars, you know, a star at the end of its life ejects a final envelope before it turns into something that we call a white dwarf, uh, which is very heavy and very bright, and, and uh, but uh, very tiny. So its luminosity is small, but its uh, temperature is very high. Now, these very high temperatures means that there's a lot of high-energy photons get given off from these uh, collapsing stars that become white dwarfs. And they uh, ionize kind of this ejected shroud of material that's been thrown off by this star. And that um, causes it to glow with a rich emission line spectrum. And emission lines are very, very discrete and very sharp wavelengths, but they're at different parts of the visible range that we see with a naked eye. And these uh, give them the very beautiful colors. Now, on the poster behind me, I don't know if the uh, listeners uh, can't see this poster, of course. I've got lovely images of um, planetary nebulae. They're some of the most beautiful, enigmatic, magnetic attraction for public interest. They're glowing embers of dying stars. That's what PNR, planetary nebulae. And they only last for a few tens of thousands of years before they expand out into interstellar space and dissipate. But they are like windows into the soul of stellar death because these glowing embers, when you look at their... The spectra, uh, when you divide the light up into its constituent wavelengths, you can see things called these very sharp emission lines. And they tell us a huge amount about what that envelope is made of, what elements are present, what's the chemical composition. They also look at the ionization state, how, how these lines have been excited by the energy from the star. And that changes, of course, depending on how hot the star is. Not all central stars have the same temperature, have a range. They're all very hot. They have a range from, say, 50,000 degrees up to like 200,000 degrees. And that creates all different kinds of ionization. So there's about three, nearly 4,000 planetary nebulae known in our galaxy. And more, about half of those have been discovered by me and my team over the last 20 years. Before I came to Hong Kong uh, back in 2015, up to now, we've created at the Laboratory for Space Research one of the strongest and most important groups studying this phenomena, studying planetary nebulae. So we're... We're quite well known professionally, 
And a lot of the discoveries have, have come from our world-class database that we have here at Hong Kong U, which I'll just briefly mention is called Hash. Not hashtag, just hash. Hey, when I was at Macquarie University before I came in Sydney, before I came to Hong Kong, it used to be called MASH, where the M stood for Macquarie. But, you know, MASH, as in the TV series, got a bit of publicity for that. But hash, as in hashtag and ha making a hash of things, actually, no, hash, the H is Hong Kong. The A stands for the Anglo-Australian Observatory, which is now the Australian Astronomical Observatory, AO. The S stands for Strasbourg. Uh, where I spend quite a bit of time every year work, working there at the Observatoire de Strasbourg, at the, which is one of the world's great data centers for astronomy in that wonderful city on the border between France and Germany. And the H stands for H-alpha, because a lot of the discoveries that me and my team made over the years came from a narrowband survey of the galactic plane uh, taken in the line of H-alpha. Now, H-alpha is one of the strongest lines. These emission lines I've been talking about, one of the strongest lines you'll see in these uh, ejected gaseous shrouds of dying stars, these PN, uh, is a line in the Balmer series of hydrogen, which, of course, everybody knows is probably the most abundant element in the universe. And H-alpha is a very strong line. And if you take a, if you look at, uh, you know, electromagnetic spectrum, and you narrow down the window you're looking at to a very narrow window around that line, then you get a big contrast in that line and you can find very faint objects. So we discovered about 1400 PN uh, very quickly using this survey in the galactic plane in the Southern Hemisphere, which I run from the UK Schmidt Telescope. So hash stands for H Hong Kong AO Strasbourg H Alpha Planetary Nebulae Database. We've created this database at Hong Kong U. It's called Hash. We have 1100 users in the professional community over more than 60 countries. So this is one of the most international databases that we probably have in Hong Kong and certainly in the Faculty of Science. We're very proud of that resource which we provide to the community. So anyway, that's the background. I've probably taken up too much time. Not at all. I'm terrible once I get started. You have to shut me up. Not at all. It's great that you you know you you set this background and you know gives our listeners an, an insight of what they're about to hear um, as well. I'm glad you pointed out to the poster behind you because you're right. Uh, it is mostly radio listeners, but we're also live on Facebook this morning. Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio Three. You'll be able to see and hear Professor Quinton Parker uh, from the Faculty of Science at HKU. He's also the director of uh, the uh, Laboratory for Space Research. And you mentioned earlier that it's only for tens of thousands of years, these planetary um, nebulae, which sounds like a, a really long time. But of course, it's all relative because Absolutely, yeah. I mean, some of these stars, they take billions of years, billions. literally billions. Now, one thing about PN is they can only come from uh, low to intermediate mass stars between, say, about about the mass of our sun, that's called one solar mass, up to about eight times the mass of our sun, eight solar masses, and things in between can go through this stage of evolution called the planetary nebulae stage. It's like a blink of an eye in the life of a star because, you know, they may last for tens that 10, maybe up to 50,000 years before they completely dissipate into something called the interstellar medium, the space between the stars. But the stars themselves, when they're evolving, can live on the main sequence for several billions of years, depending on the mass. You know, uh, stars live fast and die young if they're high mass, and they can uh, extremely long life if they're low mass. And, and as you change the mass a little bit of the star when it's born, its age can change by a lot. You change the mass by a little, you change the age by a lot. So you go from one to eight solar masses, you go from nine billion years to a few hundreds of thousands of years for the life of a star. It's amazing. But, you know, so most stars that go through PN come from low mass stars. They live for billions of years. Then they go through this ejected envelope phase 
called the planetary nebula phase, where we can do all sorts of exciting studies when they're in that phase, and then they end up being a white dwarf, where you know the core of the star remains, becomes smaller and smaller, about the size of the Earth, actually, but have about the mass of about 0.6 times the mass of the Sun. So 0.6 times the mass of the Sun, concentrated in the volume the size of the Earth, means that you know each thimbleful of a white dwarf will be will be uh, many tons in, in mass. Uh, yeah, of course, it's not the stage when you get eight times when you uh, when you go through an evolution of a star that's more than eight times the mass of the sun that can go through a supernova and you end up with a, a neutron star or a pulsar or a black hole. So it's a very different stage of evolution. But, you know, um, the, getting to the actual press release <laughs> yes. that, about the sulfur, you know, fire and brimstone. I mean, on, on our press release on Hong Kong U Faculty of Science website, we have a lovely image of a, a PN called NGC 5189, which looks a bit like a dragon. And I use that because we're, we're, we're in long, fei long, we're in, a, you know, the, the year of the dragon now <laughs> in, in, in Chinese Zodiac. And I thought, well, this this PN giving out fire and brimstone because dragons, are, sulfur is, you know, what brimstone is from, from ancient times. They call brimstone and it actually turns out to be the element sulfur. And this element, if you're looking planetary nebulae, seemed to be missing. Didn't seem to be at the levels expected when you look at all sorts of other astrophysical objects like H2 regions, even entire galaxies, you look at these things. And, the and this was what was previously claimed, yeah. that, that the sulfur yeah. was missing for, for the longest yeah, time. People the thought... sulfur anomaly, and people have been like puzzling over it for like 20 years. Where is the missing sulfur in PN? Why don't we see it? Now, we solved it, actually, and it comes down to data quality. Like so many things in science, if you have poor data, you know, it's like, you know, you know, centuries ago, people, you know, looked through rudimentary telescopes and thought there were canals on Mars. You know, you may have <laughs> canals right. on Mars. Yes. You know, it's when you look with a low resolution telescope, the kind of way things work, you sometimes your eye and things can make up things and you can think you can see things that aren't really there. Like the face on Mars, you know, it looks like, oh, we've got a human face on Mars. Suddenly you go to high resolution. It's just an escarpment and cliffs, you know, a normal, normal terrain. So the, the brain, the human brain likes to see patterns everywhere as we know. And so you see patterns in clouds. Oh, look, there's a jade rabbit in the cloud or whatever. But, um, you know, your brain's good at that. But um, we got high quality data from something called the European Southern Observatory, eight meter, very large telescope. We got a whole bunch of data for about 136 planetary nebulae in the center of our galaxy. Unprecedentedly good spectra that we are able to use. And my wonderful MPhil student, Xu Yu Tan, who's the first author on this paper and several others, actually, I mean, She's an MPhil student and she produced, uh, she got four published papers, two in AppJ letters and two in monthly notices. Not even my best PhD students can do that. And she's got four out of her MPhil. Absolutely <laughs> astonishing. Of course, under my direction. I, I was going to say, under, <laughs> it's not a, a testament. A small amount of credit for the brilliant work by my student, who's fantastic, very, very humble, a wonderful human. Uh, and hopefully she's getting a PhD somewhere very soon. I think she's just had a great interview in, in Germany, in Heidelberg. And I think they want her there. So uh, she's well worth it. She's fantastic. And I've worked very closely with her over the last two years through oh, MPhil. Professor as a Parker, you're such a great teacher. And giving her so much credit. Yeah. Really, well, she deserves she it. Deserves she deserves it. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I've done my part, obviously, but um, <laughs> try to use my experience Pass the baton. and share it. Exactly. Share it with her as an up and coming wonderful scientist that she is. And, you know, like me, she's forensic. Well you done. Know. She and so, you know, uh, when I saw that we had the papers, look, drop this let's get onto this uh, paper let's do this anomaly i think we've solved it and she and we have we've solved this problem and the, and in fact there's no anomaly if you actually look at the quality of our data and plot 
uh, what we see for sulfur against oxygen or against argon, we actually see that the uh, deficit has disappeared. The deficit was there in the... Yeah, that deficit that you see on your uh, there becomes... not. First of all, we show lockstep, which we should expect for this element compared to other elements. We see it now for the first time. And also that the scalar deficit is gone. It's gone from this up to that, parallel to the line we see for other astrophysical sources, slightly offset, but it's, it's, it's lockstep and the deficit is basically gone. I mean, we found it's also age-related, so there's a little bit of a deficit less for those stars, which are that PN come from from stars of a different mass, uh, and they're younger. And and but basically, we've solved it. And so I think the lesson for science there is: the better the quality of your data, the better chance it is of finding and resolving problems that may have existed before. And I think that's the bottom line lesson here: is that data quality is all understanding your systematics, understanding the errors, beating down those errors, getting the best possible data. High signal to noise uh, spectra shows that we can eliminate some of the other reasons and also using, uh, you know, uh, the latest uh, things called ionization correction factors, which are used to account for uh, uh, undetected ions in, 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 in certain elements that give rise to spectral lines in different parts of the spectrum. Uh, and doing the latest of that uh, it also helps to, to to reduce the anomaly. So it's a combination of the latest theoretical results with the very best data means that anomalies effectively gone away. Now, Professor Parker, let's talk a little bit more about the equipment used for the data. I mean, the data mm. used in the study. It all sounds very international. Now, uh, um, according to the press release, it's a European telescope based in Chile, and yes. then the data um, was analysed here in Hong Kong. It's Absolutely. a very international approach. Is that... Oh, yes. We're very international in the laboratory space research. We've got people from Germany and, you know, and Spain and, and India and Australia like me, uh, you know, and from Hong Kong and China, you know, in Iran, are all in the LSR. And, you know, we and our, our collaborators are all over the world. We've got fantastic collaborators at University of Manchester, you know, and, and the data we got, well, I was a, I was a co-I along with Professor Zilstra in Albert. Zilstra, a good colleague and friend of ours, uh, that uh, got all this data on the VLT over about three or four years. We collected all this data. We got a large amount of time on the VLT, which is hard to get. But, you know, we didn't need the best observing conditions, which improved our chances of getting time. And, you know, we got over 120 hours on an eight meter telescope is a huge amount of time to win. And we won this in international competition and we got data for 136 planetary nebulae in the center of our galaxy of the best quality there's been. So not only have we actually used this data to resolve the sulfur anomaly, but we also use this data to create the best ever sample of high quality abundances for planetary nebulae. In, yeah. the, in the in the in the galactic in the galactic center. We've got never been we've got five place. minutes before the news. Ooh, um, right. <laughs> do you have any other projects uh, in the pipeline that you can share with our listeners? What else should we watch out for for your very oh, well, exciting um, faculty? Um, this press release that came out came off the back of an even more exciting press release uh, a couple of months earlier, which is where from the same data set, you know, uh, myself and again Shu Yu, but along with Albert and his PhD student, I, I um, she came to me one day and said, "Look, I think there's something about the alignment of the bipolar nebula seem to be uh, similar angles," and we got a sample of only six out of 136. I said, uh, "And I said, well, these are in these are in bipolars," and and they said, "Oh yeah, and they've got short period binaries." And only the PN that had short period binary central stars, that's two stars orbiting each other, appeared to show this alignment. I said, "Well, hang on." We've only got six, but hang on. I know that PN with high ionization, high high um, uh, ionization uh, issues, they also have 
um, are shown to be in, in a short period binary. So let's also add those to the sample. That gave us a sample of 14, and the result came out at extremely high statistical significance. It's called five sigma. That's mean that's a baseline discovery. That's like a one in three million chance that it could be random. And we showed that, that the PN, you know, with these uh, uh, high ionization correction factors, are very high, tend to be in, in short period binaries and add those to the ones where we can see the stars and measure their periods. So we know they're in short period binaries, gave us a sample of 14, they gave us a five sigma result, and it showed that in the center of our galaxy, the the orbits of these bipolar, of, of the of the binaries, which dictates the, the bipolar lobe angle as well, that when we measure those angles, they're, they're aligned. But that's insane, because how can they be aligned across huge, vast tracts of our galaxy you know, tens of, of hundred, a thousand parsecs, a, a kiloparsec, two kiloparsecs over billions of years, because all these stars don't have the same age. So there's something in our galaxy aligning. That's creating that. Binary, yes, over billions of years and over vast distances. And the only thing we can think of is magnetic fields doing this. But that means the magnetic fields must have also have been coherent and aligned for at least two billion years in our galaxy. So that's a huge theoretical issue that people are going to have to address because there's incontrovertible statistical proof. So that's two massive discoveries from this single single data, data set. set. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Professor Parker, remind our listeners once again, how can we find out more about you and your work and your team? Um, have you got a website? Can we go on to... We certainly do. It's, uh, it's a website. It's in English. It's in traditional and simplified Chinese. It's called www.lsr, which is like Laboratory of Space Research, LSR dot hku dot hk uh, everything's there excellent well it's always a pleasure to have you on the program as always and we're really delighted to be chatting with professor quinton parker who's the director of laboratory for space research from the faculty of science at the university of hong kong thank you so much for your time today huge pleasure thank you very much